Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, November 3rd. We begin with a look ahead at the U.S. election. We catch up with Mike Armstrong, Global News National Correspondent, who's stationed in Pennsylvania for Election Day. We'll get a breakdown on what the candidates have planned for the final hours before the polls close. Next, we catch up with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes shares with us the conversation she had with Dr. Teresa Tam on the impact the second wave of COVID-19 is having coast to coast. The pandemic continues to put a strain on people's mental health. We speak with former Calgary Flame Colin Patterson about an organization he's involved with which takes aim at mental health issues and trauma. We learn about the resources available from the Breaking Free Foundation. And finally, he snaps pictures of forgotten locations across the province and he's gained quite the following doing so. We meet the man behind Abandoned Alberta. 6.09 on the morning news. And yes, the big day is finally here. The U.S. presidential election is underway. Global National's Quebec correspondent Mike Armstrong is in the middle of all the action today. He's made his way to Pennsylvania and he joins us now with an update on what we can expect today. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. Give us an idea of, of where you're situated, what you're seeing and what the overall atmosphere is like. Sure, we're in Philadelphia. We actually were in Ohio a couple of days ago and drove clear across the state, one end to the other, and uh, wanted to be here for, here for election night because it's been one of the places that Donald Trump has been uh, pointing fingers, saying over and over that bad things happen in Philadelphia, that there could be cheating in Philadelphia, uh, and actually telling people to go to the polls to monitor and look for electoral fraud. Uh, That's something that the Pennsylvania Attorney General has been pushing back on a a lot, basically literally accusing the president of actively trying to undermine the election. Uh, And he's He's been said, well, another pushback has been actually from the Philadelphia uh, district attorney who said, if you're planning to come to Philadelphia to steal votes, I have something for you, a jail cell. So this is a, this is certainly a place to watch. Uh, uh, 20 electoral college votes in this state. Uh, that's a 40 vote swing, depending on who gets to put it in their column. So a lot at stake here. Definitely a key state for sure. Micah, are people already lined up to vote and casting their ballots ahead of, you know, what could be a monumental night for sure tonight? They are. The polls in Pennsylvania are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., so they are are already open. We're headed out in a little bit, actually, to go take a look at that. Uh, And then the counting starts tonight, which is another big question. Um, They have a big job ahead of them. They've had 2.4 million ballots uh, as of yesterday afternoon sent in already. Uh, They only had 6 million ballots cast total in the last election. So 9 million eligible voters. The the numbers are going to be up. But the problem is... All these ballots that came in early, they come in two envelopes. Uh, there's an outer envelope that's got information on it, and then an inner envelope that's, uh, they call it the secrecy envelope. And those envelopes sort of, they have to be run through a machine and opened, and then the information checked, and then the second uh, one opened, and then that uh, gets put through the machine to, and scanned and tabulated. So all of that, like that, that's a bit of a process, and more of a process than just day of votes. And some counties are actually here in Pennsylvania, some counties started counting them this morning. They could only start counting them this morning. Others are only going to start counting them tonight once polls close, and some only will start counting those ballots after today. So that's really one of the things Donald Trump's been pointing at and saying, um, the, the counting should take place tonight. We should have a, a winner declared tonight. Uh, but the thing, the funny thing is, on election night, the only people that really pick a winner in an election is the media. Uh, the official uh, stats don't come out for days. Mm. Mike, we've uh, heard a lot over the past uh, number of days about the tension and heightened security of businesses and 
uh, you know, uh, shops boarding up windows. Are you seeing anything like that in Pennsylvania or have you in your travels across the states in the past uh, couple of days? Uh, I would say not in the previous days. I would also say that here in Philadelphia, yes, I'm seeing that um, just uh, probably a couple hundred meters away uh, from the hotel where I'm staying, which is right downtown. Um, there were uh, windows being boarded up last night. Uh, the cameraman that I'm working with walked in a different direction uh, yesterday at one point. And he said the area where he was was completely boarded up. So I think different parts of town, uh, there are different levels. But I'll also say that uh, I went down to grab, grab coffee in the lobby this morning and there were all sorts of National Guard uh, um, soldiers downstairs mm -hmm. and they're, they're here sort of as reinforcements to police as well. So yeah, you do get a feeling for that uh, potential of problems. Mike, you alluded to it earlier about how, you know, Trump's campaign, they're, they're deploying an army of volunteers and staff to watch these election precincts and the voting areas. So is, is that is that allowed? Is that okay? Because we've been hearing also, you know, claims of voter intimidation, etc. Yeah, actually, it's it's super interesting. The, um, the the mayor has been saying, like, when you go to the polls this morning, uh, bring a mask and bring patience because they're going to have long lines. But they've also got this uh, expanded election task force where the city has a, a group of uh, assistant DAs they are going to be working with police and they're going to be deployed right away. So if a call comes in from a poll, they deploy these lawyers and police officers to go right away and, and figure out what's happening and figure out how it can be solved. Um, and that includes voter intimidation, things like that. And they're promising that if you're involved in any sort of voter intimidation, you're going to be charged. They've got the charging papers ready to go and the jury's ready to go. That's what they keep saying. Wow. Um, yeah, no, they, they're really trying to make that clear. The other thing was at one point, the, uh, the Trump campaign uh, or Republicans had gone to court and said, we want to allow sort of out of county uh, poll watchers. And that was one of the things that the state went to uh, the courts and said and had that struck down. They're not allowed to do that. Um, one of, as the um, Pennsylvania Attorney General says, one of the six court cases that uh, the Republicans or the Trump campaign have brought against his state, and he's won all of them. Now, we know that uh, Donald Trump will be with his family in the White House awaiting the results uh, this evening. Do we know where uh, Joe Biden will be stationed as the results start to come in this evening? Yeah, he's next door in Delaware, as I understand it, uh, Wilmington. There's a bit of a uh, campaign party planned, but, you know, as we've seen in this campaign, um, more socially distanced, I'll yes. put it that way. Yeah. So is this a day for the candidates to sort of lay low or do they are they allowed to be out campaigning at all or are they just sort of allowed to go out and cast their ballot? You know, I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, I did see uh, Joe Biden go to church this morning. So mm -hmm. he's made a bit of an appearance, walked past the cameras, but didn't appear to have uh, spoken at all. Uh, but I'll tell you, the commercials haven't stopped this morning on television. Really? The, yeah, no, it's pretty... Yeah, um, as one of the ones I've seen probably a hundred times in my hotel room is, you know, the Republicans aren't perfect, but at least they're not. Uh, anyway, it, it just <laughs> I've seen it a couple of times this morning again, and it really does say something. The ads are incredible in this country. You know how much this election, between the presidential and the congressional races, this election is going to cost $14 billion. Wow. $14 billion, and <laughs> here's, I'll put it in context. The uh, 2016 and 2012 elections together cost uh, $13.1 billion. So something's happening here. There's yeah. a lot of, you know, this, this country had a problem with uh, spending on elections before. This has thrown it completely out of whack. 
Mike, yeah, I know you're still at the hotel getting ready to head out. Uh, my advice would be to hit that, uh, you know, breakfast bar and uh, stock up on the Wheaties today. <laughs> yeah, you're going to need them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. That is Mike Armstrong, Global National Quebec Correspondent. 7.09 now, and outbreaks and lockdowns are again dotting the landscape across Canada. On the past weekend's West Block, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson caught up with Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Theresa Tam to talk about the second wave. Mercedes joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, thanks for being here. Uh, you know, you, you talked uh, to Dr. Tam and, and you asked her if looking back she would do anything differently. So... Does she have or does she think that Canada did a good job from the outset, Mercedes? You know, she's she's very careful when she chooses her words. Um, and she didn't say, yes, here's the one thing I'd do differently. Uh, but it was very clear what she was talking about, and it was the border. Um, and she said that there was a lot of concern about closing the border because it would have potentially such a dramatic effect um, on trade. And, and other countries were not closing their borders. Uh, and I, I said to her, well, you know, New Zealand did, um, and they had lower rates. Taiwan did. They've had really low rates. Uh, she acknowledged that, which is interesting because a lot of the politicians haven't. And mm-hmm. keep in mind, at the end of the day, this is not Dr. Tam's decision. It's a political decision. Uh, but she gave the public health advice, and she said she thinks that is one of the most important things they have to figure out going forward because perhaps had the border closed sooner, we might have seen less cases. Uh, maybe there should have been a lower trigger point was basically how she phrased it for, for what closes the border in future pandemics. Um, because, well... Most of the cases have come from community spread, and those that came from travel actually came from people who were in the U.S. either as snowbirds or on vacation for spring break, bringing it back. Uh, there's a lot of questions about whether closing the border earlier might have protected us. But she also raised another good point, and that's that New Zealand and, Th- and pardon me, not Thailand, uh, but Taiwan mm-hmm. are both islands. Um, it's a lot easier to completely close a border than it is a country like Canada sure. that borders with the United States. Um, so she talked about that. And the other thing she brought up, Sue, was the talk about transmission. Remember they were saying in the beginning there is no human-to-human transmission right. here in Canada? She says, it, you know, in retrospect, talking about community spread in a way that made it clearer, which wasn't clear at all at the time, um, to to prevent that kind of transmission or that it was possible is something uh, that they would look at in the future. And I think those, those two things, saying we need to look at them hard in the future, is her way of saying, I think, uh, that it was something which she looks back on. Uh, she wonders if she might have done that differently. Or, you know, in fairness to her, if uh, the political masters had done it differently, depending on the advice she given them. Mercedes, here in Alberta, we hear Dr. Hinshaw when she addresses and does her, uh, you know, semi, uh, well, a couple times a week and if not uh, um, daily, depending on how uh, how much new information is to be released from Dr. Hinshaw, uh, has a different serious, a uh, more serious tone to her speeches lately. Did you get that from Dr. Tam when it comes to the second wave? Do you do you sense that she's, uh, you know, take, you know not, not taking this seriously, that's her job, but a little more concerned in the past few days? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we we only ever have sort of seven minutes in the show, but we did a full half hour with her sitting down, and it's up on our podcast, and it's also up online if uh, your listeners want to go listen to it. Uh, We got really deep into the second wave, and the numbers that she showed on Friday were astonishing. I mean, December, between now and December, people don't cut their contacts with literally a vertical straight-up line in cases, way, way more than we had in the first wave. Um, So she said she is deeply concerned. Uh, They are asking people generally to sort of cut back on their social contacts by above 20 
about 25%. Uh, but she acknowledges for some people this isn't possible. I mean, there's people that are going to work as firefighters. They're exposed to people at work. They go home to their family. How do you cut 25%? There isn't any. Uh, but others who are getting together and having a lot of social gatherings or a lot of folks over, hanging out, they're saying, look, just cut back by 25% because that is where most of the spread they're seeing is coming from. It's not mostly coming from bars and restaurants. It's coming from schools. It's coming from social gatherings. Uh, but they really, really, really want to keep schools open because of the social consequences of closing them for kids. So, and also, by the way, for the economy, right? Mm-hmm. Parents can't go to work because your kids are at home. Um, so that's something she talked about. She also said, not only are they worried about this, I asked her, is there a potential for a third wave? And she said, after the second wave, um, fewer than 90%, uh, pardon me, more than 90% of the population, so fewer than 10%, somewhere between 8 and 10%, maximum will have immunity to coronavirus it could be as high as 98 percent of the population that does not have immunity to coronavirus Mm. Um, and this could by the way include people who've already had it because they don't know how long the immunity lasts and there are cases of people getting it a second time so she said you know she's not going to say 100 percent yeah there's going to be a third wave but when you think about how the waves have gone in other countries and what we'll have to sort of watch those contracted ahead of us and the fact that most of the Canadian population, the vast, vast majority, will not be immune to it. Um, yeah, there's a possibility there could be a third wave of this, which I know everyone wants to draw <laughs> right now yeah. because no one wanted to hear that. But that's what she said. Wow, scary thought for sure. Let's switch gears a little bit because there, other than COVID, the one big thing that is going on in the world today, and let's face it, it does affect the rest of the world, is the uh, the election down in the U.S. And I know you sat down as well chatting with Seamus O'Regan, Minister of Natural Resources, and there was a discussion about Keystone XL, and, and that has a big effect on us, obviously, out here in Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. So if Joe Biden wins, he has vowed that one of the first things he will do when he gets into office is kill Keystone XL. Um, and obviously that would be, as you say, a, a very significant effect on Alberta. There's, there's jobs involved in that pipeline. There's a lot of hope attached to it. Um, and that could all be gone overnight. So we wanted to know, uh, what is the government's position on this? Because uh, while they have bought a pipeline, as they always remind folks, um, they have not in any way uh, bailed out the sector directly that produces oil and gas on the oil and gas front. They've put in money for abandoned wells, and they've put in money to help uh, transition basically onto greener programs away from oil and gas or to make those programs greener themselves. And they've taken a lot of criticism from Alberta for having not given something directly to the oil and gas sector when it was sort of a double hit. Not only did you have already historically low oil prices, you then had, uh, you know, Russia jumping on the bandwagon and the Saudis kicking you while you were down. Uh, And then on top of that, COVID started to hit. So it's been a really difficult time. And if this pipeline goes down, it raises a lot of concerns about what could happen to Alberta. Seamus O'Regan says that they will defend the pipeline. They will argue, they will forcefully argue with the Biden administration that they believe that this pipeline should go through because he says it has done uh, a lot to change from the initial pipeline they were looking at, that there has been extensive environmental considerations taken in, that there has been extensive consultation with Indigenous populations along the line as the government fully backs this. Now, does Joe Biden care that Justin Trudeau's government mm. wants this pipeline? Um, I don't know that that will be the case, but it certainly could be devastating for Alberta. And at the end of the day, if the U.S. president says no pipeline, there's no pipeline. Thanks. So, I mean, I guess we're going to get some answers hopefully tonight, but it could <laughs> or be, in a month. <laughs> it could be days, days from now. At some point before January. Yeah. Yeah. Before January 20th. Hopefully. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Mercedes. Thanks, guys.
That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. 6.42 now and dealing with trauma has become even more difficult during the pandemic. But the Breaking Free Foundation is looking to combat that with online meetups that will help support trauma survivors. Calgary Flames alumni Colin Patterson joins us now with more info on these virtual sessions and how they're helping. Hi, Colin. Hey, Sue, how you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. so important that we talk about this and let people know that there is help out there. So can you kind of break down the, the Breaking Free Foundation for us and, and what you do? Yeah, we're a small foundation, and we're really there to provide support of, of traumatic life events uh, for survivors uh, with treatment and support needed to reclaim their lives. So uh, it all originally started with Theo Flurry and Amber Craig, and Theo was doing those Victor walks, and uh, the two of them decided, hey, we need something that can help people break free from trauma, mm-hmm. not just you know sexual abuse, but all, all forms of trauma. And that's the way the Breaking Free Foundation started. Really do two things. We we have meetups where we have gatherings, which used to be in person, and we'll talk about the online thing in a minute, but um, where people could come and we'd have two facilitators and a discussion would happen. And those would be an hour and a half. They'd be in person and, and they were free. And then we have these therapy grants too. If people needed some, uh, you know, traumatic uh, therapy, and we would get these grants with psychologists who were specialized in that specific trauma. Because there's all sorts of trauma, and uh, it goes from you know sexual abuse to physical to mental to even people who have uh, lost loved ones. So there's lots of uh, trauma around. Um, that's what we're there for. And we, we sort of fill a small niche, uh, but it's it's big. It is uh, so big now that uh, I didn't imagine when I got involved that how many people have suffered major traumatic events and how it affects them. And so that's what we're there for. We decided when all of a sudden COVID hit that you know, we couldn't have our in-person ones, so we started online. And they've been quite successful, and it's been interesting. I mean, it, it takes a little time to get used to it, but uh, we still run the uh, meetings and the meetups uh, through Zoom or online and WebEx and all sorts of different uh, technical ways. But it's been very successful. We've had you know between 15 to 20 people at, at each uh, meetup online. Wow. So it, it's been good, and, and people need it. We just started back with our in-person ones and i know i'm rambling here a bit but uh and that that is so needed too people mm-hmm. you know there's some people who like online there's other people who don't want to say anything online do anything online so we've got back to our regular meetups obviously in safe distancing and social distancing uh but those those things are very very important and we do them once uh once a month and we do you know, online once a month and we're doing the in-person back again once a month Colin, uh, you know, uh, Calgarians know your name, and this is obviously important to you. You lend your name and your time. So I'm wondering, what was it uh, that uh, drew you to the organization? Because you could be uh, spending your time helping out any uh, corner of the city. Yeah, you know what really uh, drew me to this was I sat beside Theo uh, Fleury in in the dressing room uh, during his first two years of hockey, of NHL hockey, and with the Flames. And I had no idea what he had been through. And after I found out, you know, when he came out and told people what he had been through, I was shocked. And I, I just felt I needed to do something. I said, if he ever 
does anything on a charity, you know, charity wise, I want to be involved. And so when he started the, uh, you know, the Victor walks, I wasn't at the first one, but we went to a couple of Victor walks and we got involved and went to all the events that he was holding for uh, breaking free. And then they asked me to sit on the board, which I was more than honored to do. And so uh, I feel that, you know, since I've been in there and, you know, Theo was the main reason there's, I just, as I mentioned before, this is, uh, there are so many people with so many traumatic issues that, you know, the mental health issues are, are big. And it's, you know, it's not just in Alberta, it's all over the world. Great reminder, Colin, that, you know, we don't know what others have been through, but that there is help out there and uh, Breaking Free is one of those places. So thanks so much for joining us. And it's breakingfreefoundation.ca for people to get all the information they need, right? Yep, soon, Andy. Thanks very much. And uh, thanks for that opening music, too. It was beautiful. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Okay. That's Colin, Colin Patterson, Calgary Flames alumni. And uh, it is breakingfreefoundation.ca. 909 now. Back in 2017, Joe Chuanek started a Facebook page where he shared his unique photos of abandoned buildings around our province. In just a few years, that page has gained more than 36,000 followers. And now you can see the stunning images in his new book. Joe Chuanek joins us now. Hi, Joe. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. I've just been uh, scrolling through your Facebook page. It's called Abandoned Alberta. The photographs are are beautiful. They're vast. What was the impetus behind this? Are you just a guy who goes out on road trips and, and snaps photos originally? Yeah, that's that's basically how it started. I, if my wife was working on a weekend or an evening, I would, I was bored. I'd go in my car or, and drive around and start snapping pictures of old buildings for whatever reason. It's something that you were interested in. Now you have this Facebook page. Are you surprised that other people are as interested in the abandoned uh, structures as you are? Uh, yes, honestly, um, <laughs> I, di- I didn't. I didn't know when I started this on a whim. My, you know, my family, my wife, my friend says, oh, "Puts up some of your photos. They're really good. Maybe people will like them." And then the next thing you know, there's tens of thousands of followers. And I mean, I'm not the only one. There's all kinds of groups dedicated to this type of stuff so there's a big following it's just neat joe because it's not just you know it's not just a a shot from the road of a building it's sometimes what's inside what's been left behind or a close-up of a a really neat a doorknob for example is this just something that kind of catches your eye are you a trained photographer no not not trained anyway just uh started off amateur and um just took my time and been learning and going and um, listening and getting advice. And then um, some things just catch my eye. And I, I think as some people tell me you need the eye. You can push the button on the camera. You still need the eye to mm-hmm. you see things that maybe others don't see. And there's, um, yeah, yeah, there are some unique shots there. Do you have a favorite of our, or a couple of favorites that you can mention from your Facebook page? Oh, <laughs> tough, isn't it? They're all <laughs> like your babies, I'm sure. Child, my favorite <laughs> um, uh, the Hannah Roundhouse down in Hannah in, in the Calgary area there, um, just because they gave me access to, to get inside and photograph. Not many people have had access inside of it. So that's a pretty special spot. There's a uh, farm out near um, west of Edmonton that has given me access, and there's a couple photos in there. It's an old international harvester dealership. hasn't basically been touched since 1968 when they closed the doors, so everything's just, it's like stepping back in time when you walk in there. All the equipment's still there, and all the tools and all the parts are in the bins. It's, it's kind of eerie. What's the weirdest thing you found inside one of these places you've visited, one of these abandoned buildings? 
weirdest thing I found inside. Hmm. Because um, I can't believe the stuff that's left behind in some of these places. Yeah, I don't know about, I, just, I can't think about weird. I found a cat skull on someone's <laughs> desk. Okay, well, that's um, a bit creepy. Yeah. Uh, I found, we found a bunch of old, out in the middle of nowhere, old arcade games when they, um, like the ones you'd see in bars and pubs in a, in a house for no reason. Um, recently saw a buffalo skull on top of a piano in a field. Um, <laughs> as you, as you why, would. Why I don't know why it was there, but it was there. Many of these buildings and these structures, they're leaning, the roofs are caved in, are beginning to cave in. So have you ever considered yourself uh, perhaps someone of a, a preserver of history? Because these structures, again, with some of their conditions, won't be around for much longer. Uh, definitely, and that's part of the reason that I've gotten more and more into it and trying to learn more from the families is the history. It's it's disappearing. Um, the cover the cover photo on the book took it in March. It has since fallen, and so that mm. you know a big bit of history is now gone. It's, it's just a memory for someone, I hope. And um, luckily, it was preserved in photos. So, yeah, it's important to keep our history. It's very rich history. It's rich, it's different, and you've created a beautiful hardcover book. Where can we buy it, Joe? Is it available at, at all bookstores now and, and online uh, too, maybe? Yeah, it's online, Amazon chapters. Um, Costco has some. Um, Maptown in Calgary has a bunch of signed copies downtown. Um, but it's limited stock right now. The publisher is rushing to get a, another printing out, so stores are kind of limited on stock. But, you know, there's lots of pre-orders or you can post your orders and stuff like that. Would you consider it a coffee table book? Definitely. And yeah, what, how would you, I always hear that uh, term, coffee table book. Great pictures and a quick read. Would that be a good definition? Yeah, and, a, and a kind of a showpiece to put on your uh, table and, you know, in your house or uh, um in an office, on an office lobby, it's just something great to pick up and flip through and wonder about days gone by. Well, check it out and uh, visit the Facebook page as well. It is called, oh, is it a, uh, Alberta? Uh, sorry, uh, I just, Abandon Alberta. I just Abandon, moved off Abandon the Alberta. page. Abandon Alberta is the Facebook page, and it's a beautiful book. Check it out. Joe Chweniak, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. And uh, he on social media as you want if you want to check him out. Joe is cranky. I like his handle. You like that? You yeah. see that? Yeah. You know, it's it's incredible, and he gets to travel. And I I think it's always awesome when people have these little side gigs that kind of take things over, and you find out that you're not the only one interested. And I know I bring things back to beer quite often here, Sue, but. <laughs> I think about, uh, you know, Toolshed Brewery, who, uh, a guy in his backyard and, and him and his buddy got involved. And now Toolshed, you can get that beer basically anywhere. But it started as a backyard hobby. And this is the story of Joe to a large extent. And, and that's what I like about it. It's interesting because my great-grandfather was one of the original settlers in Turner Valley. Mm, okay, yeah. And I remember going to his house in the early 80s. He lived to be, I think, 90 or 92 years old. So it's not many people have that opportunity to hang out with their great-grandparents. But his house had a potato cellar in it and a wood stove, and this is in the 80s. That's how old his house was. I wonder if there are any images um, from that area well, in this book. You should check it I out. Should, I should check it out for sure because I have an image of it. And what had happened was I and hadn't been there for maybe 15 years, and I drove down about maybe two, three years ago. House was still standing, but it was marked up with spray paint for demolition mm. in order to put uh, you know some condos in place. It's kind of behind the Chuck Wagon Diner in... Um, Oh, in, wow. in Valley. So I, I managed to, and now, you know, my parents, they cherish that photo. So it's, sure. it's just a photo, you know, but 
it means so much when these buildings and these structures are gone forever. Yeah, most definitely. And just, you, you got to go on the Facebook page and scroll around. I mean, there's old churches, old abandoned churches, and just the things that have been left inside of these places. Old vehicles, I mean, you see them all the time, right, when you drive by a farm, but sometimes they've been out there for years and oh, years. Oh, yeah. So really cool pictures, really neat images, and a great book from, uh, from an Alberta author, so uh, a photographer, I should say. Well, and Christmas is coming up as well. Oh, and, it'll be know, a great gift. Those books yep. are fantastic. And you know, if your family had those coffee table books, they sit there forever and you, uh, those memories uh, from those pictures are etched in your head because it's always there on the coffee table. When you're bored at a, a right. family get-together, you can pick the book up and, and, and uh, you know, flip through that. It's great. <laughs>